develop their own habits. And the reason I say that is sometimes as parents, we have the best of intentions and we prescribe, this is what you ought to be doing, my son, my daughter, uh, when it comes to spiritual disciplines and so forth. And uh, sometimes there's kind of resentment that builds up when the kids, that your children are going to choose, they have to choose to follow Jesus Christ. You can't make that happen. That's a work of God. And uh, so encourage them, but do it gently. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Any of you agree with that at all? <laughs> all right. Find the book of uh, Luke in your Bibles. Today we're in Luke chapter 9. Um, it's been 11 years ago now that what I'm about to tell you occurred. There were a number of uh, Taylor University students, Taylor's in uh, Indiana, Evangelical College, a number of students and faculty coming back from um, preparing for an event the following day. They were coming back from Fort Wayne, tra traveling in a um, college van. There were nine people in the van. I think there was uh, five students, four staff, something like that. And uh, as they were traveling, unbeknownst to them, coming their direction was a, a tractor trailer being driven by a man named Robert Spencer. Now, Mr. Spencer had already been driving that semi nine hours more than federal law allows. And so as he approached um, this van on I-69, he fell asleep. He crossed over the median, plowed into the van, ripped the side open, and uh, five people were killed instantly. As the medical workers were on the scene triaging the people and getting them ready to transport to hospitals, uh, one woman was on a stretcher and an emergency worker put the ID of Lauren Van Ryan, Laura Van Ryan on her and they shipped her off to the hospital. Officials contacted her family and said, your daughter's been in a terrible accident. She's alive, but she's in critical condition. You need to get here as soon as possible, which they did. Um, when they got there, uh, Laura had tubes coming out everywhere, lines. Her face was bandaged up. She was uh, pretty badly damaged. And the family uh, held a bedside vigil 24 hours for the next five weeks until she began to come out of her coma. Uh, before she did, um, her sister, who was sitting by her bedside most of the time, started to notice some things that didn't quite add up. And as they were removing things in the weeks as she was uh, getting uh, a little bit better, she said she'd seen her mouth open. She said, something about the teeth doesn't look quite right. And they took off more bandages from her face, and then she said, this girl has freckles. Laura doesn't have freckles. So at five weeks, um, she began to come out of the coma, and her sister asked this question, what's your name? And instead of saying Laura, she said Whitney. Now, four weeks before that, a pastor in northern Michigan at the Gaylord Evangelical Free Church buried his daughter who was killed in that crash. I knew that pastor when we were pastor, when I was pastoring in Michigan. Um, had breakfast with him sometimes. And as the things began to come out, the hospital workers began to wonder what had happened and they got dental records out and lo and behold they discovered that the woman in the bed was not Laura Van Ryan but Whitney Sarek. 
And all of a sudden, one terribly grieving family became filled with joy, and one hopeful family began to grieve deeply. And isn't it true that when we, how we identify people determines how we think about them, how we respond to them, how we interact with them, how we behave? If we draw one conclusion about them, we, we, we react this way. If we draw another conclusion about them, we react this way. We may have a good friend, for example, that we thought they were a good friend, and then they throw us under the bus with somebody else. They start talking about us behind our back, and we're like, how could you do that? I, I didn't think you were that kind of person. We may end up parting ways as friends. How people, how we identify people affects how we react to them. And Jesus was in the early days of his ministry. People were scratching their heads to figure out who is this new guy on the scene. He's doing all kinds of miracles. He's casting out demons he's teaching in a way that we've never heard any of the rabbis or scribes teach before he teaches not just as if, as if if he has referred authority but as if he has his own authority who is he and maybe more importantly what's he up to who is he and what's he up to now this morning as we look at this text in luke chapter 9 God has something he wants to say. Remember we talked a number of weeks ago about how every time you come in here on a Sunday morning, Christ has a message for you. Every time you come in, Christ has a message for you. And I think that's true whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. And so I hope if you're not a Christian this morning that you hear carefully what Christ has to say to you. And if you're not, if you are a Christian, I hope that you'll listen carefully to what Christ has to say to you because it, this might be much more of a reminder for you than something new. When we talk about, you know, as we celebrate communion every other month, it's a reminder, right, of what Christ, Christ has done for us. We, we remember as we drink uh, the juice and as we take the bread, we remember what Christ has done for us. Friday night as we baptized five people here, they, they were remembering what Christ has done for them as they shared their story of faith and so for us as christians this may be time to remember and maybe in the remembering do some analysis uh, is, is this where i am today where christ wants me to be maybe i was there at one point but i'm not there anymore so i just pray that spirit of god would leave you open to the message of christ this morning luke chapter 9 we're going to start reading at verse 18 One day Jesus left the crowds <clears throat> to pray alone. Only his disciples were with, them, with him, and he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you're one of the other ancient prophets who's risen from the dead. And then he asked them, Who do you say I am? Peter replied, You are the Messiah sent from God. Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was, and we'll explain why that is in a, minute, in a bit. The Son of Man must suffer many terrible things, he said. Of course, the Son of Man is how he most often referred to himself. He said he will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. 
And then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. But what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but are yourself lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I tell you the truth. Some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. And that line is a reference to what's about to happen, the transfiguration. Jesus is revealed in all of his glory to Peter, John, and James. Let's pray for God's help before we dive into this. Father, thank you for our Savior. We do have the benefit of looking back from this side of the cross to see who he was and what he was up to. I don't know that I grasp the magnitude of all of that based on the measure of my delight in him. And so I pray for every remaining day that I have, the Spirit of God would bring to bear in my life the grandeur, the wonder, the majesty of the grace of God in sending Christ for somebody like me. I pray that the Spirit would speak to each of us today. It almost has to be an individualistic message for us. And so I pray that when you can, that you would speak through me, and when you can't, that you would speak in spite of me. And I, I, I pray against the enemy that hates you, he hates us, he hates your people, he hates your agenda. And so I pray that you would muzzle him, bind him this morning, that while he's tied up, spirit can work with great freedom and I pray the spirit would um, keep us from either erecting higher or keeping in place obstacles that we have in our hearts to the work of the spirit places we don't want him to go areas we don't want him to monkey with Questions we don't want him to ask. Challenges we don't want him to give. And that he would have clear sailing in my life and each of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Who is Jesus and what's he up to? Now, Jesus asked his disciples a question, who, who do people think that I am? Since all the disciples were Jewish, and vast majority of the people that were coming to Jesus in the early days of his ministry were Jewish, it's not surprising that they gave Jewish kinds of answers. Well, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're one of the other ancient prophets, Isaiah or Jonah or uh, Micah, come back from the dead. <laughs> and the, the uh, teacher in me, 
when I look at that passage, I just think, okay, they got it wrong. I would jump right in there and say, uh, you're wrong. This is who I am. And Jesus doesn't do that. He was great using the Socratic method. He asks questions to teach. And so then he turns and asks them, well, who do you say that I am? Now let's get back to the other people's conclusions, I, identification of Jesus, what the, who they thought he was. My guess is that if you took this question, who do you think Jesus is to work tomorrow, or uh, out in the practice fields in the coming weeks, you are going back to the high school athletics, or if you're talking with a neighbor this evening over the fence, you ask them this question, they wouldn't have these same kinds of answers. They might say, some of them might say, I don't believe, Je I don't believe Jesus ever existed. He's a myth. It's interesting, um, that conviction used to be more widely held, especially among the professionals. But even, to the, even today, um, scholars who are skeptic have pretty much given up on that idea. There's too much evidence. Not a large body of evidence, but enough evidence. You have the Jewish Roman historian Josephus writing the first century about Christ. You have Roman historians Tacitus, Suetonius writing about him. And even though they didn't write as believers, the things that they wrote is in harmony with the things that are written in the primary documents, the first four books in the front of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So not too many people are probably going to say that today, at least those who have investigated it. If they don't think he's a myth, though, they might say that he's a maniac. The things he said are just, some of them are just crazy. He said, for example, he said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. What? Yeah, if, and if a soldier asks you to carry his gear for a mile, take it two miles. No way. And I want you to go sell everything you have and, and uh, take the proceeds and divvy it up to the poor, and then you come follow me, and then you'll have eternal life. The guy's a maniac. He's a, he's a whack job. My guess is, though, that the vast majority of you, if you ask that, that question of somebody you know, that they would say, oh, Jesus, he, he's a great model. Yeah, yeah, he's, a, he's the kind of guy that people should emulate him. They should carry out his example, follow his example. Like Gandhi. Gandhi, the one who dragged uh, India kicking and screaming into the modern uh, world and uh, dealt the death blow to British colonialism there. Gandhi loved Christ. Thought he was a, a great example. He modeled some of his uh, nonviolent tactics after, after Jesus' life. But he was insistent. He didn't like Jesus' followers. And so he could never become a Christian. But he thought that Jesus was a, a great example. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, um, points out that that's really not an option to take Jesus as a model. He writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That is that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say, Lewis argues. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so when Jesus asked his disciples, okay, who do you say that I am? It's not a dead prophet. It's not a myth, not a maniac, not a model. They said, you are the Messiah, son of God. Now, the Messiah is a Hebrew word for anointed one, same as the Greek word Christ or Christos, anointed one. And because they were Jewish, and because this is still pretty early in Jesus' ministry, I don't think they would understand the magnitude and the fullness of Jesus, what Jesus was, who Jesus was, let alone what he was here to do. In fact, Jesus said later, very late in his ministry, he goes, ah, you believe at last. They're still looking at this through a Jewish lens, and so no doubt they understood that Jesus was indeed the prophet that Moses had predicted would come after him. God's going to raise up a prophet like me from among you. They understand that the Messiah was coming to deliver Israel. They didn't get the Gentile piece yet. Israel, it's all about Israel. We're the, we're the chosen people of God, and, and God's going to send us prophet to deliver us from these oppressive Romans. So Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus tells him, recorded in Matthew's account, ah, you didn't figure that out yourself. My father revealed that to you. Now it's interesting here that Jesus goes right from this identification of who he is to what he's up to. Why have I come? What's, what's my mission? What's my purpose? First of all, verse 21, he warns the disciples not to tell anybody who he was, and he did that frequently with people he healed, people that he cast demons out of. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Why? Remember this phrase that he used several times? My time has not yet what? My time has not yet come. He told his brothers, any time's right for you, but I'm on a timetable that's been given to me by my father, and, and I can't get... I can't get to the crucifixion too early. I have things to do before I get there. But then he goes on to reiterate, this is my mission, verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. Now this is, Jesus kept telling his disciples, even though they didn't get it for many, uh, many times, they didn't get it until after it was all over. Uh, he's going to tell him again a second time in this same chapter. He's going to tell him again, I think it's in Luke chapter 11, and two other times in Luke, he's going to infer or imply this is what's going to happen to me. And a number of occasions, the gospel writer says, and the disciples didn't understand what he meant. It was hidden from them. And tragically, we're on this side of the cross now, and yet today, it's, isn't it hidden from so many people today? even sometimes in the church. That Jesus' mission was, he's all over the map. And that yet the core either gets missed or eclipsed by every other thing. So Jesus' mission was to come and promote social justice. And Jesus' mission was to come and do miracles. Jesus' mission was to come and cast out demons. Jesus' mission was to come and, and uh, bring together Jew and Gentile. All of those things are are products of his mission. They're good things. But they're not the mission. The mission is the main thing that the organization is all about. So here at Keystone, 
we say our mission is, is to love Jesus Christ and spur others toward the life in him. So it starts with loving Christ. We can't love people till we love Christ. And then we spurring other people goes two directions. One, toward brothers and sisters to encourage one another as long as, as it's called the day, to encourage us to walk in faith, walk with Christ, obedience. But also towards unbelievers, we want to... We we want to introduce them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's our primary mission. We do a lot of things that promote that mission, do a lot of things that are kind of subsidiary to that. We have a lot of events and activities, but that's the main reason that Keystone exists. We say right out in our sign here in Route 30, we are a gospel-centered church. We used to say we're Christ-centered. We changed that because this person believes one thing about the Christ, right, the identification process. This person believes something different about the Christ, and this person believes something different about the Christ. But the gospel is kind of uniformly understood, so we know that if we are gospel-centered, we are, gosp- we are, we are Christ-centered, believing the Christ, Son of God, came to, to do the gospel, to carry out the gospel in his body, death, burial, and resurrection. That's what we are all about here at Keystone. Jesus died, buried, raised to life on the third day. What do we do when we baptize Friday night? We put the people down into the water. That's a picture of the co-crucifixion, co-burial with Christ. Bring them up out of the water, picture of the resurrection with Christ. When we eat the bread and we drink the juice, pictures of of Christ's suffering and death, burial. It's a picture of the gospel. So get it clear. We hit it all the time. The gospel is what Christ has done, not what we've done. And you can say amen to that if you want. The the gospel is what Christ has done, not what we've done. You you can say amen. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 15. He says, let me remind, verse 1, let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. Gospel means good news. You welcomed it then and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you. And then we jump to verse 3. I passed on to you, and now he's going to describe what the gospel is. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. That's a reminder of why, why we give these kids the Bibles. The Bible is not God. The Bible is a testimony about God. The Bible is not Christ. The Bible is a testimony about Christ. Now we say here at Keystone, because the gospel was what Jesus came to accomplish, that the gospel in turn affects 100% of our lives. It, It affects everything in my life. If you're a follower of Jesus, it should affect everything in your life. And let me ask you a question, brother or sister. Does it? Everything in your life, and I'm talking about um, uh, what you watch on television tonight. I'm talking about on how you conduct yourself on the job tomorrow. I'm talking about how you speak to people at school, how you take tests, I'm talking about how you think about a world full of uh, several billion people who have never once heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I'm talking about how you decide what you want to do with your life. I'm talking about how you decide where you're going to move to. I'm, I'm talking about how you're going to spend your money, all of it, not just 10% of it. I'm talking about how you want to spend your time. The question, Christian, that Jesus wants to ask you and I is, is that true, that the gospel affects 100% of your life and my life? And Jesus goes on to spell out why it should. He's just shared the gospel with us. Now he's going to tell you, and he's going to speak to the people in the crowd that are gathered around him and say, if you want to be my followers, this is what's going to look like. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Let me just stop there. Two years ago, the NLT uh, uh, committee did a revision, a minor revision of the translation. And this is one change that they made. I think it was an excellent change. It says, now you must turn from your own way. And the reason they did that, selfish sounds, we always think of selfish as something immoral or evil. And if you have a more literal translation, Jesus said, you, you must deny yourself, right? So the idea is not just turn from your immoral ways, but your own way completely. I'm giving up my way on, in favor of Christ's way. If you want to be my follower, you must turn from your own way, take up your cross on Sunday, and follow me. Is that what it says? What's it say? Daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, let me just say something to you if you're, if you're not a, a Christian. One of the things that some of us Christians have um, been bad at is emphasizing the free work of grace of Jesus Christ while failing to convey to people who are not yet followers of Jesus what it's going to look like after they receive that. Now, don't misunderstand me to say that we err by emphasizing and, and communicating the grace of Christ. I mean, we are saved, listen, we are saved by virtue of what Christ has done, not what we do. How do we access the gospel? Paul says in uh, Acts 20, 21, here's the gospel that I preach to Jew and Gentile alike. You must turn to God in repentance. That means to change my mind about my love affair with sin, turn and walk the other direction, and have faith in the Lord Jesus. So that I'm turning from sin to Christ. I'm trusting Christ that he paid adequately for all of my sins on the cross. And so I'm not saved by what I do. I've, I'm saved by what he's done. Nonetheless, there is a call on the life of every person who does that that is a 100% call. It's a little like this. Let's, uh, let's say you're going to, uh, you buy a house. And let's just say for argument, the, the price of the house is $200,000. You get, you get a loan from the bank and you have your own money to chip in, but you write out a check one day at settlement and now the house is yours. You own the house free and clear. All you had to do is, is, is buy it. It's not a perfect analogy because we don't buy salvation. But my point is you have access to the house now. It's all yours to do with as you please. But now that you own a house, there's all kinds of work to do. The first thing you have to do is move in. And I swear Satan designed moving. 
That has got to be one of the most awful things that has ever um, come to humanity. Sometimes I, we moved five times in seven years, so I really have bad memories about this. Um, and I, you know, I, I think, man, wouldn't it be cool just to live in a tent? You don't have any stuff. You don't have much to pack up. You just live in a tent. You move sleeping bags and it's no big deal. I'm Brandon and Rachel, God bless you this week leaving for North Carolina. I, I wouldn't, I'm busy that day. Can't help. Sorry. <laughs> so first thing you have to do is move. Then you have to put the stuff away in all the cupboards and, and you have to stock up with the napkins and so forth. And you hang the towels and you put the pictures on the wall and and then they're crooked and you have to straighten them out. And, and then the kids are arguing about who gets which bedroom, so you gotta navigate all their uh, drama. And there's, there's a lot to do. You have to go outside and mow the yard. You have to fix your garage door when it breaks. And you have to plant flowers and on and on. And, and you see, the Christian life is the same way. We get in like that. But make no mistake about it, Jesus did, listen, Jesus did not die just to get you into heaven. Jesus did not die just to get you into heaven. He died to claim you for his father as a son, a daughter of the living God who lives now forever for the son's glory and the advancement of Christ's kingdom. And that's why he would say to you, take up your cross, not just Sunday, take up your cross daily. Tomorrow when you hit the workplace, how are you going to react when somebody brings to you a report and says, the numbers that we came up with in that test really aren't the kinds of numbers we want to see. We want you to doctor this report and send this to the home office. What are you going to do? Especially if you know your job might be on the line. Are you going to just do it? Not rock the boat? Or is it going to be almost automatic? I'm sorry, I, I can't do that. I, I serve a Savior that died for me so that I could live for him. I can't possibly do that and look him in the face. What you do when somebody's getting picked on at school, I'm see Annalise, but I just appreciated Chuck what she said the other night and gone to bat for that Muslim girl at school and result was she got kicked out of a group of friends should have ongoing daily effects take up a cross daily what is the cross it's an instrument of suffering and i think this is especially true for us who uh name the name of christ in america man that is just not a facet of our faith that we want to really buy into and yet Peter says, 1 Peter uh, 4.12, he says, look, look you, <laughs> you shouldn't be upset at the suffering you're going through as if it's something strange. You're, you're, you're going to have people make fun of you. You're going to have people that wash their hands of you. Ladies, you're out on a date with that guy that you think is so cool so hot and as the evening wears on and about your eighth date he's starting to do things he shouldn't be doing and you're like I don't want to lose him what are you going to do 
if anybody wants to be my follower, he needs to put aside his own way, take up the cross, and follow me. Speaking truth, caring about the people that God cares about. I mean, you just graduated from college last year, and you have a six-figure offer on the table from a company that you would love to work with. But there's this little problem. When you were a sophomore in college, you did a short-term mission trip in Bangladesh, and you came back with a brand-new understanding of God's heart for the world. And maybe learned for the first time that there's a billion and a half Muslims around the world who only know the things about Jesus that are written in the Quran, and most of them misleading. For the first time that there's a billion Hindus in the world who when missionaries ended up in India trying to lead them to Christ, they said, oh, we can, oh, we like Christ. Sure, we can add him to our pantheon of gods. We have 3,000 some gods and we'll just add him to the mix. You can't send people like that an email and say, here's the plan of salvation, buy into it. You need to live among them. You need to serve with them. You need to love them in the name of Christ. That there's a half a billion Buddhists in the world who are some of the nicest people. I was in Thailand, I was in Vietnam and Laos, and and these are some wonderful, sweet people. You don't even hear horns honking hardly. And they should be. Their streets are chaotic. But they're nice people who don't know about a a God who so loved them he gave his one and only son for for them, even though they didn't grow up in a Christian home. And you have had this growing suspicion that maybe God is tapping you on the shoulder to do one small thing to break up that sadness around the world. Christian husband, when someone comes into your home and hears how you speak to your wife, does it sound like the bridegroom that we know as Christ who loved his bride and gave his life for her or does this sound just like a, another guy down the shop the way he speaks to his wife I, do you hear what Jesus is saying Je- Jesus is saying I'm going to die for you but make no mistake about it. It, it it's a comprehensive death burial and resurrection that intends to comprehensively address your life so that it now becomes my life instead of yours. Is that, brother and sister, who you are in Jesus? Is that who I am in Jesus? Again, unbeliever, make sure you understand me, you hear me. There's only one thing that Jesus asks of you in order for you to become a child of God. We looked at this passage last week in John chapter 6. Verse 29, when Jesus was having a conversation with the people that he had fed the miracle food to the day before. Verse 28, they said, well, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? And Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Same thing Paul told the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Believe, what should I, what must we do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
Let me close with a verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a verse that I adopted as a life's verse decades ago. I thought, wow, does that ever um, link the gospel with the outworking of the gospel? 2 Corinthians 5.15, he, I'm, I don't have it memorized in the NLT, sorry. He died for all, meaning he died for the whole world. And now he narrows it down so that those who live for him, meaning those who come to Christ, would no longer live for themselves. Put aside your way, right? No longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised to life for them. Unbeliever, what are you going to do with God's invitation this morning? Christian, what are you concluding as you compare this call? Maybe remembering it. Maybe haven't seen it for a while. Maybe haven't read it for a while. What are you thinking about your own life as you see this reminded call that is on your life? It's not just on the person to your left or to your right, front and back of you this morning. It's on your life if you're a follower of Jesus. Does your life look like that? And if not, what's the message Christ has for you this morning in response to who he is? Father, for the Savior that you sent to redeem a bum like me, I say thank you for a gospel that reached out much more intentionally to the marginalized in society, the poor, sometimes the Gentiles, even when Jesus was here preoccupied with the Jews, for the lepers, the prostitutes, I am reminded that I am in good company. And meanwhile, for those that thought that they had it all together, that didn't think they needed a doctor, how many harsh words Jesus had for them because they thought that they could save themselves. I do want to pray for people that might be here this morning don't know Christ. I pray that they would not just dive in uh, because they want a ticket out of hell and a ticket into heaven not just dive in because somebody they like is a Christian not just dive in because they'd like to have friends like they might find at a church that, that they would understand the, the, the measure of the gospel is the measure of your love for them and that that initiative would woo them and draw them in, but that it would be drawn in with eyes wide open. The faith is the only price of getting the house. But once I got the house, Jesus is going to be my master. Make that clear to them, Lord, and then draw them. And for us who know Christ, May we savor the gospel in such a way that saying, yep, I'm going to put aside my way. Yep, I'm going to take up that cross of suffering daily and follow Jesus is not scary because we know the heart of the one we follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us?